This program is brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. We're here to present the EFC Network Podcast. The Environmental Finance Center Network is a partnership of 12 centers serving 10 EPA regions. The EFCN provides training and technical assistance to small water and wastewater systems. This podcast series has been designed to help system personnel improve technical, managerial, and financial capacity of the utilities and communities they serve. Hello, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Environmental Finance Center Network's podcast. I'm Stephanie Dalkey, and I'm a program manager at the University of Maryland Environmental Finance Center. Today's topic is how are wastewater systems adapting to climate change? We are going to talk about how climate change, especially heavier precipitation and more intense storms, impacts wastewater systems, as well as what compels systems to take steps to adapt and build their utilities resilience and what practices can make them more successful at these efforts. We are going to hear from a professor and researcher who has investigated the factors that contribute to water and wastewater utilities resilience and discuss lessons learned that can apply to systems of all sizes around the United States. So uh, we are here today with Christine, Dr. Christine Kirchhoff um, from Penn State University to talk with us about wastewater systems and climate change and adaptation. And Christine, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your position and what you do? Sure. I'm an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering and law policy and engineering at Penn State. And I also help to direct the law policy and engineering program. And so that, of course, involves the usual uh, faculty commitments for teaching, research, and service. And so I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk with you guys today about this really interesting um, topic and a passion of mine. Great. And we, we love finding ways to help apply research into the real world. So it's a great opportunity. All right, so we want to talk with you about a topic we've been very interested in, which is climate change adaptation and wastewater and other types of infrastructure. So to kind of set the context, one of the things that we see as being a more widely felt impact these days has been uh, increasing precipitation. That's one of the most common problems we're seeing, especially in the northeastern United States that's Uh, exacerbated by climate change because warmer air holds more water, therefore more rain can be dumped in shorter amounts of time. This has certainly caused problems like you would typically expect, you know, flooding, overwhelming of stormwater systems, things like that. But there are also a whole lot of other impacts that we see being experienced by utilities, which could be the potential for uh, violations or failures of service disruptions, needing to bypass their treatment plant or something like that, power outages, which can also affect all of these things. We're we're interested in kind of hearing from you, since you've been doing some research in this field, what you've been seeing and what you've been seeing folks do to learn from all of this and adapt to it. So before we get started, I wanted to kind of remind folks of generally one of the definitions of resilience that we work with here is means you're able to kind of handle a disruption or disaster or an event and uh, handle it without failing or having a major disruption or disaster and be able to bounce back from that disruption more quickly. So that's kind of the really rough definition we tend to work with. And then on the other side, there's adaptation, which are kind of the steps you take to either deal with more frequent changes or to be ready for a disaster. So you can 
take adaptation steps to become more resilient overall. That's kind of how we think of it, generally speaking. And so uh, in your in your work, uh, you've been doing a lot of research on this with utilities. And so I know you've done uh, some work in Connecticut and in some, some other locations as well. And so I'm just curious, you know, what inspired you to take on this, this research and what kind of interesting things have you learned from it? Yeah, so I would say I was inspired by kind of three things. Sort of personally, I historically have focused a lot of my research on the production of actionable knowledge and in particular, kind of how climate information, so the things, the kind of information that we need to use to know what to adapt to, how that information is made more usable in general, and specifically to infrastructure managers and natural resource managers. And so that, you know, sort of my first foray into uh, my PhD dissertation research was all about the kind of connecting the dots between producers of climate information and users of climate information. That one was focused on water systems and really trying to understand what water systems are doing to adapt to climate change. And then the other kind of stream of research was around kind of water policy and governance. And when I got to Connecticut, I started and I was in civil and environmental engineering. So I have a social science PhD and uh, undergraduate master's in engineering. And I really wanted to bring these two things together more closely. And I landed in Connecticut and the conversation in Connecticut at the time was about these storms that just kept hammering the state. So you had Sandy, you have a, a storm Snowtober, you know, back in uh, 2010, 2011, these storms, and then Irene and, and just a number of storms hit the state and the region in quick succession. And each time seemed to kind of shake the infrastructure in the state in different ways. So sometimes it was these week long 10 day power outages and sometimes it was, you know, inundation with flooding. And more recently it was, it's been like high winds causing a lot of problems. So my interest in sort of bringing engineering back to the forefront in my research, but combining it with the social science and climate information that, that I had been working on before really uh, set me on a path of looking at the human dimensions of resilience. And that work that you mentioned about studying wastewater systems in Connecticut kind of came out of that. And it was a, kind of a confluence of, of having an interest in that area and being in a place that needed that kind of work to be done. Um, and the only other thing I would say is sort of part of the reason we needed that work to be done was because the systems in the state were in some ways not as prepared as we might have hoped. And part of that has to do with the thinking around, you know, what is resilience and that we have really kind of thought about, well, resilience to to the past, to, you know, the whatever it is that we've experienced and we hadn't experienced things like, you know, 10 days of power outages or these really, um, you know, vicious storms that come in to, to play and, and wreak havoc on our systems. And so it was pushing systems outside of their comfort zone, realizing that it was a number of things that seemed to be undercutting what were perceived to be quite resilient systems before. And so really needing to really think about what is resilience, um, how do we 
become or work on the resilient infrastructure that is, you know, how do we how do we wrap our arms arms around um, resilience to something that we don't even know all that much about the uncertainty and the uncertainty, the surprise that's coming. Um, and so really trying to help uh, systems help understand what's happened in the past and help un help systems understand, you know, how to think differently um, or just broaden their thinking about what they're doing to build their resilience. Well, so when you did this work with um, utilities in Connecticut, what kind of uh, findings did you come up with? We spend a lot of time talking with, so in Connecticut, it's the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection that is the regulatory arm, as well as the you know, same uh, entity that helps to do capacity building and kind of the, the kinds of things that you guys do as well. Uh, so we were working in partnership with the Connecticut DEEP, reaching out to wastewater systems through a survey and then through interviews to understand. And, and we built on the NUIPIC survey. And so that they had done a survey and answered a few questions and sort of looked at broadly across New England, what are, you know, what had happened. And we kind of used that as a foundation of, okay, so now we know in general, you know, sort of what systems have experienced, what let's look more deeply in Connecticut. And so we surveyed most of the systems in the state. I think there's 126 systems in Connecticut, wastewater systems. And we, most of them, about 90 of them participated in the survey. And what we learned was that the vast majority of systems experienced impacts, whether it's power outages, losing access to the facility, you know, flood and inundation, et cetera. So that those impacts were widespread and they weren't necessarily it wasn't limited to just the coastal systems the you know the storms that come up at the coast and really push inland we saw both inland systems and coastal systems being impacted and it was large and small systems so it, it no one was really immune to having these impacts and i think that was a bit eye opening that you know that that the impacts were those that widespread i think the other thing that was interesting was when we look at then what did that mean in terms of what were systems doing? Because part of our work was not just, okay, what's happened in the past, but how are people trying to adapt? How are these systems adapting? And we found that it was those impacts, and particularly if systems had been subject to power loss, then losing access to their facility, then you know inundation, those are the systems that, that perhaps got multiple wake-up calls. And that prompted them to either to make the change or to continue making investments in the resilience of their systems because they'd seen just a range of things that they didn't either you know, anticipate or maybe were worse than they'd experienced in the past and had caused disruption that they had to deal with. And of course, wastewater managers don't want these disruptions. They don't want to see untreated wastewater be in the streets or in in our environment, and so there's a lot of motivation to to build the resilience. And part of it is, you know, assembling all the right players to to help make it happen, and the resources and the like that I'm sure we'll talk about. I think kind of heartening and also disheartening at the same time to see that you know almost all of the systems, whether they've they're huge and they've got a lot of staff and money, relatively speaking, or if they are tiny, they still. Um, can experience problems. So, you know, no one's alone in this, uh, this issue. Yeah. And maybe one thing to say about that is that one of the things I, it, until we really dug into this, I mean, one of the 
challenges with the larger systems that there's sort of more at risk. You know, they tend, they can have larger collection systems, you know, spread over a much larger area. So a lot more to keep up and running to maintain, you know, and a lot more mm -hmm. than that could, um, a variation in the kinds of risks they might see out in the, in the, uh, collection system. And then, you know, might be bigger plants with bigger problems possibly, you know, and certainly there's more capacity there, but yeah, it's just a lot more to deal with. And it, it wasn't something that I think we'd fully thought through um, until we did the research, just that the challenges are different and it isn't automatic that more, that wealthier systems or bigger systems might necessarily be automatically more resilient. Were there any really nice lessons learned that you picked up out of that set of surveys and interviews um, in terms of what kind of really motivates them to take steps or they've found kind of creative ways to start adapting? Yeah, I think overall the systems that were sort of doing doing better, it was a mix of things. It was these systems tend to be led by you know, individuals that are really kind of thinking about the team, you know, thinking about making sure that they want to hear what the staff have to say, you know, not trying to to kind of lead by decree, but really creating this um, collaborative team environment that everyone's all hands on decks at all the time. And that we tended to see um, facilities where they, you know, employees were cross-trained, for example, so could wear different hats. That helps on the human side of things when, you know, you have maybe the person that was supposed to get to the plant wasn't able to get to the plant during the storm because, you know, tree fell on the road on the way in or whatever. And so someone else is able to, to you know, take on that role if it needs be. So, so I think part of it is that the human side of it, and then part of it is, you know, there's a lot of ingenuity, even among systems that were smaller or didn't have huge resources to do things. I think one of the big lessons that came out of that was the need to do a range of things. So the human side of things, thinking about, you know, hardening, which is what we, we kind of jump to usually, right, is, well, let's, you know, raise everything up, wall it off, those kinds of things. But that's pretty uh, capital intensive. And so there are really innovative things, though, that are accessible, replacing manholes in areas that are now prone to flooding that weren't before. So making those manholes less susceptible to infiltration, then things like uh, even temporary flood proofing. So there was an example of a, of a wastewater system that had a machine shop craft a, a stop gate and, you know, installed this stop gate in um, a doorway and used literally some spray can foam to temporarily create uh, a waterproof situation for that facility that had some important electrical equipment without having to save raise it up or flood proof the whole thing with, you know, spending, you know, gobs of, of money on that. So part of it was the, you know, needing to do a variety of things, human, human hardening. And another aspect of that is the connections that we have to others. One of the big things that came out of the Connecticut's experience in these storms was that wastewater systems and water systems for that matter, weren't on the uh, power restoration list. So hospitals were on it, but water and wastewater systems were not on that list. And so you, you, it seems obvious now, but 
you know, that was a change again, not something that we think about, uh, but knowing who the power provider is, you know, who's the contact there, making sure that, you know, you're tied in to, to that, to, as, as well as the, you know, your local uh, emergency management folks and the state emergency management folks and things like that. And knowing where to get the resources and spare parts on hands and alternative fuels and, and the whole nine yards. So there's all kinds of things. And I, I think the systems that, that sort of exemplified the best of the best were those that were doing those different things and that weren't complacent having done something, right? They were this constant kind of, I mentioned, you know, a collaborative team kind of organization where employees were quite flexible. It was also this kind of a learning organization. So constantly trying to understand where's where are my weak spots? How can I improve them? And then that's I'm not I'm not done yet. You know, I'm I'm continuing to learn and improve. And I would say the only ones that were really adapting to climate change per se, the idea of not just let's be able to bounce back as quickly as we can or mitigate any kind of disruption that we have, but really we're thinking about climate change in 2030 or 50. Those were systems that either were working with a, an engineer that brought that kind of thinking in, or in Connecticut, there's a now a, a memorandum of understanding a, that requires if a system takes advantage of clean water revolving funds that they consider climate in their plans. And so it was really that kind of regulatory push or the happenstance of having a, a, a relationship with an engineering firm that brought that in. Um, those are the kind of circumstances that seemed to create. It wasn't, not every system was really uh, looking at climate adaptation in that way. Right. Yeah. So mostly you see a lot of systems that have, they've had a flood or something. It's, caused problems, and then they've been like, well, we need to be able to deal with that again, rather than looking forward to see how much bigger could this flood be next time, or in 10 or 20, 30 years, that sort of thing. That's right. So you might mm -hmm. set your generator, you, you do invest in putting it up on a platform, but the, that platform is just above the last flood level. So that, I think everyone is dealing with that challenge these days of well, how do you even make decisions about this future future situation where we're the data is still, you know, it's it'll never be perfect. Um, it can be unclear. We're as time goes on, we're getting narrower and narrower uh, projections for what things might look like, but it still can be difficult. And so I, I find that interesting that now that it they're tying uh, some strings attached to like clean water revolving loan fund dollars that will sort of uh, encourage folks to to look at ahead. Have you seen anyone taking other adaptations that aren't just about, you know, a flood or disaster, but thinking about sort of long-term capacity issues or anything like that? I thought you might have been going to like other state approaches to uh, helping mm. facilities adapt. But I guess to the capacity issue, one of the things that came up in our in our conversations with wastewater systems is are the ones that maybe over designed. So in in um, Connecticut, we do have a few communities where there's a bit of out migration or where um, so either a loss of of households or that you've seen the 
installation of uh, water saving appliances to mm -hmm. such an extent in the system that there's literally less flow coming in. So now the plant has more capacity than than it was anticipated. And that's actually been, you know, been helpful when you have some of these extreme events come along where just by, you know, other kinds of things happening in the community and um, in, you know, building codes and the like, that you have these kind of savings that are impacting the plan in this case in a positive way. And that's helping to build in sort of a longer term um, climate change capacity uh, without having to sort of spend more money. Um, the other thing I was going to say that you made me think about was uh, the case of Rhode Island, who in Connecticut, they're continuing to develop more tools that are meant to be for communities and uh, including water and wastewater systems and, and, and the towns, the many towns that we have in Connecticut to use to plan for infrastructure, for, for all kinds of facilities to be more resilient to climate change. But those have been developing over time kind of slowly. They, they weren't as widespread when we conducted this study. In Rhode Island, they've kind of taken a maybe a more holistic view where they did a statewide climate vulnerability assessment for each of the facilities. Granted, they only have 19 wastewater <laughs> systems in, in Rhode Island, so it's a bit more manageable. So the state kind of did that work of here's a 30,000 or 50,000 foot view of a vulnerability assessment for each of our facilities. So you have that information if you want it, mm -hmm. but then they can tie in that included in those assessments were, you know, projects and things that as funding has become available from the feds and other places through the green bank and, uh, and the like, now you've got projects that you can link up readily to funding streams. And so it's helped to move some of that along in Rhode Island, perhaps a bit more quickly, as well as conducting boot camps and trainings with operators to take them to the facilities that were flooded in some of the storms um, that they've had in Rhode Island to developing statewide tools for sea level rise and inundation mapping. And even now a tool that's linking kind of real time, you know, weather modeling into, you know, predicting flood uh, extents and depths that the facilities can kind of use for planning purposes. So they've been looking at it in a quite holistic way for some time in Rhode Island. Uh, and it, that's one of our uh, states that we're working on uh, right now in terms of a, a different project on kind of state-led innovation, resilience building efforts and trying to understand how, you know, what's working in some, in some states and what's maybe doing, you know, happening that's different and maybe working well in some ways and, and not in others. Yeah, well, so that's that's interesting. Um, are there any other states you've seen that are providing a lot of this guidance for uh, wastewater or water utilities in terms of adaptation? In our area, uh, well, in Maine is another state to sort of put out there. They have they've been using the clean water funds. Also, have a kind of a twenty percent set aside for green use, and so Maine has a program to use some of that um, set-aside money as um, climate adaptation planning grants. So if wastewater utilities are interested, the state will work with them 
to help them, you know, take advantage of the funding that's available, but also, you know, whatever technical assistance they might need to produce those adaptation plans for the wastewater systems. And then I think beyond that, there are, makes me think of the, the climate, um, climate ready water utilities. There's a, a, an alliance of water and wastewater utilities as well. That's sort of an independent voluntary group that's been putting out a lot of guidance material uh, mm -hmm. around, you know, lessons learned. Now those tend to be the really, really big guys, you know, the Seattle Public Utilities, the Miami-Dade County, the or Broward County, you know, um, Denver Water, just you know, really big uh, organizations. But the the guidance materials and things like that that they're putting out there offer some tips uh, and things to think about for smaller systems too to take kind of leverage the the work that these other uh, systems are doing and trying to put out there to be helpful. Yeah, and I, I think you're talking about the, the Water Utility Climate Alliance. You're um, right, the Water yeah. Utility Climate Alliance. Thank you. Yeah, I've just found some of their reports in the last few months, and they're very, really interesting. Um, and so that can hopefully be a nice resource for anyone who's trying to figure out where to start. Um, and the same goes for the, you mentioned the CREW program that from the Environmental Protection Agency, Creating Resilient Water Utilities, I think is what it stands for. Um, and so they've got some great resources too. They've got kind of a beginner version of a resiliency guide that smaller systems especially could kind of step through. And then they've got the a tool called CREATE, which is, I cannot remember the acronym, but it's uh, you can get really detailed in terms of looking at scenarios and analyzing the costs and benefits um, of potential strategies that you're looking at. So, and they're offering technical assistance now directly to communities and utilities, which is great because I've seen several communities take that up um, in our region in Maryland and Virginia. So I think that'll be a nice resource if they can continue that sort of support going forward. Um, and they've got lots of great case studies too um, on that website. Yeah, they do. And there is a, um, so thanks for remembering all the, the acronyms. Um, there, there's also a, like a resilience database in addition to the Right, so I'm sure you've seen that. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what that's called. Uh, Rain, mm -hmm. maybe R A I N E. I that think that's right. what it's called. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which could be another place to go. But I know my students and I played around with the EPA tool, and um, I do think it is helpful to have technical assistance to yes. to go through it and to kind of yeah help help folks along with it because it is pretty intense if you take yeah. it up as far as it can be taken. Well, uh, so in the course of doing all of this work, um, are there any other kind of just interesting examples or uh, tidbits that you've come across that just have really stuck with you that might be useful for other folks to hear about? I think I've, I've mentioned an, a fair number. I, I guess I wanted to put out there that in the work that we're doing now, we have another project on water system resilience as well. And we've been kind of thinking, you know, I've spent a lot of my time focused on the wastewater system itself. And I'm, and what I beginning to realize, and I think other scholars and folks that are working in this space too, is that we really have to broaden our view. So it's broadening to think about climate change, you know, the temporal um, uh, vision, but it's also sort of the geographic scope. So to the extent things like green infrastructure would help in mitigating larger flooding might also then make it a little bit more um, 
you know, reduce the instances where you can't access a facility, you know, and it's sort of win-win for the, for the community as a whole, um, mm-hmm. but also has these co-benefits. So kind of thinking of, you know, co-benefits that help the wastewater, it's not as a direct assistance and resilience, but more broadly, we're all sort of tied together. Uh, and we sort of sink or, you know, sink or swim together in this, uh, in this environment. And I think, you know, expanding our view and footprint of what makes a wastewater system be resilient is, is the broader community's resilience too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and kind of take, beginning to kind of think about that a little bit more, you know, obviously there's a lot of part, re, you know, research partnerships and training the next generation, which I think you guys are really involved in. Um, so I think about resilience as how do we get the next generation in who is interested in, you know, participating in this sector or more broadly working in this space, there are really good jobs available, but also uh, by the way, you know, helping them understand and think differently about resilience from sort of day one. And, mm-hmm. and then the, the last kind of thing is the, the connection to sustainability too. So thinking about energy security, you know, the, I was just talking, we have another project looking at kind of solar and renewables and wastewater and mm-hmm. biogas has been, you know, for systems that are over a certain size, um, biogas is often cost effective to, you know, use within the facility to capture and use for heating and things like that. The facility we were talking to yesterday is installing solar because in the winter, biogas production is lower. So then solar and battery backup um, in Michigan, which is allows it, doesn't always, not every state allows it in Pennsylvania, they don't. Um, but this provides, you know, sort of energy security for that facility in a way that wasn't, but there were incentives and things like that to help them cover the co- the capital costs of, of making those investments in energy security. And I think related to that is as the cost of energy goes up, you know, working on energy conservation, working on energy security is also another one of those win-wins where, you know, these extreme events happen, but now we've got, you know, other fuel sources available at the site to help us manage our resilience in that way too, as well as our sort of economic resilience, because we're freeing up money to be reinvested in the plan or elsewhere in the community. You you mentioned expanding kind of resilience and, and adaptation and how we think about it. And that, that reminded me, um, so you've talked about some of the sort of hardening physical infrastructure capital type of projects, but then there's the other side of this, which is just the, the human dimension. And also, I think what I would classify as sort of the asset management, you know, thinking about your operations and, and your maintenance uh, type of practices. And that's something that we've certainly seen in places where if you're failing to clean out pipes or culverts or whatever, then they're, they don't have the capacity to let water through when there's a lot of rain and that, that type of thing. And have you seen many utilities start to adopt those types of practices and then they end up better, even though they didn't make any big capital investments when they've had an incident? I think that's absolutely true. And it is something that I really should have mentioned as among the better systems are the ones that are really running on all cylinders today. And so by all cylinders, I mean, you know, they really have a good grasp of their plant. And part of that good grasp of the plant comes with having asset management in place, you know, really good operation and maintenance schedules and things like that. Because just as you pointed out that I think it's 
it's really like situational awareness of the plant, knowing kind of where the weak spots are, you know, anticipating breakdowns before they occur and, and getting them ready to go. I think all that contributes to being able to bounce back and weather these extremes easier than other systems that are perhaps struggling to do that. Um, I totally agree with that point. And then I think it's the, okay, it's an and, let's do that. And how do we do these other things? And not always spend a ton of money doing them because sometimes it is those temporary things that can help in the interim, you know, those removable shop gates or, you know. Yeah, the spray foam. <laughs> yes, spray foam, right? Um, <laughs> Thank you, uh, Dr. Christine Kirchhoff, for talking through all of your work with us today and all these uh, things you've been seeing in the wastewater adaptation world. We hope to chat again sometime. Thanks, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure talking with you today, and I look forward to you know hearing this live. Can't wait. Thank you for joining us today and listening. To learn more about these and other relevant topics, or to join an upcoming training event, access resources, or re request technical assistance, visit the Environmental Finance Center Network website at efcn.org. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of the EFC Network Podcast, brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. Be sure to stay tuned for future EFC Network podcast episodes.